Yo. To the beginning of another trial. Oh, yes. Another jury trial. <laughs> another which we jury trial. We'll yet. see how it goes. You know, I'm sort of feeling good about them. I know. And also to uh, a really interesting newsletter that we just put out, which we're going to talk about one of the cases. But Yeah. The, so this episode is going to focus on two, maybe three important recent cases. And I'm going to let you take lead on this. But um, well, this is really important stuff. The first one we want to talk about, and it came out very recently, um, from our the Ontario Court of Appeal. This was um, a case where somebody was acquitted at trial. And it was one of the lower courts. So they went to Superior Court to appeal. And Superior Court um, ordered a new trial. They overturned the acquittal. Yeah, so just slow down for one sec. So just this just came out at the end of March 2023. And it's the Ontario Court of Appeal overturning the, the Superior Court appeal judge. Right. So this is the second appeal. Correct. That's where I was going. And the case is called RV Spicer 2023 ONCA. 232 you can find it on the canadian legal database which is a great thing because you know most of the cases if the decisions are published we have a thing called canli it's c-a-n-l-i-i dot o-r-g canli.org and you can go look up cases for yourself and see what you think of them but we're going to look at uh at the spicer case first because it has an interesting aspect to it in terms of which judge was being reviewed and oddly enough this is a case we touched on in a previous episode um because the the judge who is the um who was at that time the superior court appeal judge um uh, has ascended to a higher position so we had reviewed a number of decisions this happened to be one of them right yeah so to lay out I think we should lay out sort of a little bit of the background of the case. I would lay it out in a yeah. very clear fashion to be fair to everybody. And I've tried to highlight just the important elements. So this is a case involving two co-workers who were at an event through work and uh, the complainant went into the men's washroom because she couldn't find the women's washroom. And of course, you know, one of the things that can happen is uh, a man will come into the washroom while you're still in there. The two of them started flirting with each other. and then They had, they had both been drinking. Yeah. And uh, then their stories differ at the point that they meet. And uh, she claims that he grabbed uh, her nipples and then told her to go into a bathroom stall and uh, tried to force her to give oral sex. And that came to an end when two co-workers um, ended up coming into the washroom. He says that they were flirting, but he didn't touch her breasts before going into the stall that they, um, he suggested that they go into the stall. She agreed and um, took his hand. We, they went in and locked the door. Then he started to, you know, remove his penis from his pants. And, uh, and then somebody, they heard people coming in. At that point, he touched her breasts. And while they were in the stall together, a coworker uh, came in and ended up looking over the wall of the stall, which I find to be, a, you know, an interesting thing for a person to decide to do. And that put an end to the activity, and uh, and they both left the washroom. But then, of course, you know, one of the aspects of this is um, the question of how did the complainant feel about having people observe the activity in the washroom, and was that potentially a motive? And the complainant alleged a sexual assault, right? Mm -hmm. So. In yeah, in, in sort of two parts, but. Um, I think we should just explain that. Yeah. So there's a. You know, the, the grabbing of the breast that she says happened outside the stall. 
and then being forced into the washroom and having an attempt to force her to, to give oral sex. So that's, that's the allegation. Comes to trial. The trial judge, um, both parties testified, and then the trial judge uh, went through a decision, ultimately acquitting the accused. And he recited principles uh, that we know about credibility from a case called WD. And, and he, burden of proof. And burden of proof, and he reviewed the evidence and um, noted that there was obvious differences between the two versions of events. But in the end, the trial judge said that he was left with a reasonable doubt that the accused had grabbed the complainant's nipples prior to them going into the stall. Also, the trial judge said he was also left with a reasonable doubt about the complainant uh, did not give. So the trial judge was left in a reasonable doubt that the complainant did not give her consent for what happened in the stall and how they wound up in the stall. So in the conclusion, based upon the inconsistencies that he determined that were material at the time, he found that the Crown had not proved beyond a reasonable doubt the lack of consent. And he went through the evidence of both the complainant and the accused in, in a fair bit of detail. So after the trial judge's decision, the Crown appealed because it was by summary conviction, it went to the Superior Court and the judge in the Superior Court was sitting as an appellate judge on a summary conviction appeal. And that went to appeal. So the Superior Court appeal judge allowed the appeal and ordered a new trial. In concluding, the Summary Court appeal judge stated that the judge's conclusion rested on myth-based reasoning predicated around the myth that sexual assaults happen only in private, which amounted to an error of law. The Superior Court appeal judge further found that there was no evidence that the complainant specifically consented to each and every sexual act, and that the trial judge erred in finding that she had. Consequently, the Superior Court appeal judge allowed the appeal and ordered a new trial. I'm going to let you go in one second. I just want to repeat this again. These are, these are two really interesting issues that they that they determined were errors. Just one moment. <laughs> and the second one is probably the most concerning. The Superior Court appeal judge further found <clears throat> that there was no evidence that the complainant specifically consented to each and every sexual act and that the trial judge erred in finding that she had. The Superior Court appeal judge further found that there was no evidence that the complainant specifically consented to each and every sexual act and that the trial judge erred in finding that she had. So that's, it's really interesting because Crown appeals are a lot stricter than an appeal by an, an, a convicted uh, accused, we call the appellant. Um, when it's a Crown appeal, it has to be, it's a very narrow, has to be strong errors of law. And in, in both cases of a Crown appeal, or you know we call Crown, but prosecutor appealing, and the accused appealing, um, it is very difficult for uh, courts of appeal to um, come up with their own credibility assessments. They have to defer to the judge and you can't substitute your own opinions uh, or your own findings of fact. And that's one of the things that they found with this particular case is that the uh, Superior Court appeal judge had substituted her own facts. But even more than that, this, okay, first of all, this myth 
right? It's a myth that um, sexual assault happens only in private. I've never heard of that being cited as a myth that was employed. It would be if, if somebody thought that. But what the Court of Appeal said, at no point does the judge say that. And this is so important because when you're talking about myths and stereotypes, um, your, your findings have to be based in the evidence at trial. And that's what they said is it was open to the judge to make the inferences he did based on the specific facts of this case, being that they were very close to their co-workers who could have walked into the bathroom at any time, that the um, before they went into the stall, that they were in a, a very, what was the thing, open plain view for anyone to see if they entered the bathroom. So he factored this into his consideration about what he thought was more probable and whether or not it raised a reasonable doubt. And that's a proper way to approach the evidence. That is not stereotypes as based in the specific facts of the case. And this is so important because um, it's so unfair to our judges when they're being accused of myths and stereotypes, when they're actually using their, uh, when they're actually following the evidence and carefully assessing it. And in this case, the judge was very particular and detailed in his assessment of what the evidence was at trial. I'm sorry, I'm still hung up on. The Superior Court Appeal judge further found that there was no evidence that the complainant specifically consented to each and every sexual act. Well, that's the second aspect. I, I know, I just can't stop repeating it. The Superior Court Appeal judge further found that there was no evidence that the complainant specifically consented to each and every act, and that the trial judge erred in finding that she had. Okay, so explain why this is so egregious. It reverses the burden of proof. Right? So, so but you it's don't need to, to be why. an appellate judge to figure this one out. And and I I, I, I don't want to be overly dramatic. <laughs> A sexual assault case is prosecuted <clears throat> in the manner that the Crown bears the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the act occurred without consent. So somebody can be acquitted because the Crown has failed to establish beyond a reasonable doubt lack of consent. The Superior Court Appeal judge found that, the, that there was no evidence that the complainant specifically consented to each and every sexual act. As if the defense had to prove consent. What the f***? No, I know. It's complete reversal it's not the just, of the It's not just with absolute and due respect. It is not just a reversal of the burden of proof. So that statement would suggest that an accused has to establish that the complainant had consented to each and every sexual act, which is not just a reversal, it's a burden on the accused to establish at some level of proof consent. But it's an absolute misstatement of the law and of the principle of proof beyond a reasonable doubt applicable in all criminal trials. It is so bad that it is beyond belief. It's a danger. No, but it's beyond belief yeah. that a, a, an appeal court <clears throat> would actually state that. Yeah. And I also was really troubled by the extent to which the evidence that was being reviewed and, the, and, the, and they go through the trial transcripts 
at how much was misstated about what was said by the judge and what the evidence was at trial because it's very important to accurately cite what was said <laughs> you know like when you're deciding whether or not especially looking at whether or not there's myths and so on and just the the amount of important details which like they say she claims that a certain thing was said they go through so uh, the court of appeal never never said by the judge never said at trial the ontario court of appeal in their analysis found that the superior court appeal judge did correctly cite the principles applicable to a crown appeal from an acquittal but failed to properly apply them in fact what the superior court appeal judge did was to revisit the conclusions that the trial judge drew from his factual findings and substitute her own view of them. This was an error for the Superior Court Appeal Judge to do so. Central to the error was exactly what you said, that the Superior Court Appeal Judge had found that the trial judge engaged in myth-based reasoning. The Court of Appeal specifically said, with respect, that is not what the trial judge did, and you've explained yeah. that. Nowhere in his reasons was that said and the court of appeal the ontario court of appeal found that a trial judge is entitled to draw reasonable inferences from the facts that are presented it was open to the trial judge to draw the inference that he did from the facts that were before him a different factual scenario might not flow from such an inference but it was the trial judge's job to decide on the available inferences and to do so without being labeled as having engaged in myth-based reasoning while we accept that the trial judge's reasons were not as clear as they might have been on this point, ambiguity is not sufficient to establish an error. So, you know what I really like about that? Because that ambiguity point, that was reinforced by a case um, from the Supreme Court of Canada called GF. Yes. And GF was, um, I, the facts on that case were really bad, and we've discussed it in the past. But there was an instruction to appellate courts to not um, parse out what judges say and to read it as a whole. And if there's some ambiguity, then you should, you know, you should approach it as if the judge is correct in law. If it's ambiguous, if, you, if it's not very clear that they made an error, and that got used in favor of um, an accused person now. And I think that's really important because primarily that's always been brought up when it's, um, when it's an acquittal and the um, complainant is, uh, is not, uh, I don't know, is, Usually it works in the opposite direction, where it's used to reinstate convictions. And in this case, GF ended up, and, and this is how I saw it. Well, it, it arises often in cases of an appeal of a conviction. What's good for the goose the is good for the gander. Where the, ambiguity, where the ambiguity is left to the fact that the judge is to be granted some deference in the analysis. And although the analysis may not be as clear on the whole of the evidence, it still establishes on the threshold for what they have on appeal that, that, that the uh, conviction should stand. So this was now used in favor of reinstoring an acquittal. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is it can apply to both, and yeah. that's correct. Yeah, when the judgment's in favor of accused, the same, same principles apply. That's right. And then we move to the second issue, which I've raised and repeated a few times, that the Ontario Court of Appeals said that the Superior Court Appeal judge uh, made a significant error in finding that the complainant had consented to each and every sexual act. The trial judge did not make such a finding. What the trial judge did was that he was left in a reasonable doubt over the issue of consent. Specifically, the trial judge said, it leaves this court with a reasonable doubt that the complainant did not give her consent 
for what happened in the stall and how both of them ended up entering the stall. There is a difference between finding a lack of consent and a finding that there is a reasonable doubt about consent. The difference is fundamental to the WD principle or the analysis we do in credibility and the burden of proof that rests with the crown. Which is integral this, to our justice system. To the Superior Court principles. Appeal Judge erred in failing to recognize and give effect to that difference. Now say what you're going to say, what you just said. Well, it's fundamentally integral. It's fundamental to the fairness of our justice system and the integrity of our justice system. And that the, that the law is premised to proof beyond a reasonable doubt means that in a sexual assault case, the Crown must prove beyond a reasonable doubt lack of consent. This was a clear reversal of a burden and an absolute misreading of the judge's very clear written judgment where he was left in reasonable doubt about consent. These, so these errors that were um, identified by the Court of Appeal are concerning because as it was pointed out at the beginning, this is the judge who's now on our highest court. And you know it's, it's concerning if somebody's going to be making important binding decisions and they have some confusion about the burden of proof. Well, I, I, I didn't, I was just addressing this case, but... Um, well, there was an article, like, it's, it's what fell on the floor in the Globe and Mail pointing out, you know, that issue as well, that, you know, but, but I do find that, you know, when these decisions come out, that, that errors like that end up being corrected in, in the future, but, but that, that was a concern. Well, I, th I think the takeaway from this case is, and, and what's important, is to remember that Sexual assault cases um, are are really a, a controversy in Canada. It is a it's at a level of ideology and politics, and as well as as law. And um, and when we review cases, it's important for all of us to be accurate about what the law is and understand the law, whether we are. Crown attorney or defense lawyer or judge, we must understand the law and respect it and follow it, whether we like it or not. And that includes understanding how sexual assault law evolves and understanding myth-based reasoning. Whether we agree with it or not, if the law is established in a certain way, it's our job to understand it. We can challenge it, but we can understand it. What's fundamental to a criminal trial is that the Crown bears the proof beyond a reasonable doubt. What's fundamental in a sexual assault trial is that the Crown proves beyond a reasonable doubt that there was lack of consent. That is absolutely fundamentally not the same thing as a judge finding in this case that there was consent. It is a complete reversal of the, of the burden, but what it is more fundamentally and, and disturbingly is a misstatement of the law of how you prove have the crown has what the what the standard is the crown has to prove and and it's important in canada and we're not naming anybody and, we, and and it's with great respect that and 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 our judiciary by and large does a very good job of working hard to try and get it right mm -hmm. and they don't always and that's fine that's what we have appeals for and and not all judges who are appointed come from the same background. But we all have to row in the same direction to try and make sure that we can at least agree and follow the law on basic principles that underlie our system of justice. And that is fundamental is the proof of which the Crown has to establish a criminal case. And this was a really pretty stark misstatement of that law. 
And so when we have people in a position of making decisions and they are appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada and they have misstated the law, we hope that what comes from this is that there will be a learning and an understanding of what the fundamental basis is in a, in a sexual assault trial. And it is not premised on some other understanding of sexual assault cases. Well, and, you know, that's uh, one of the reasons why we put out our sexual assault law update newsletter, which yeah. you can go check out on nrlawyers.com, where we um, provide this. And a lot of members of the legal system read this. And it's so important because as new decisions come out, um, it is a, f a rapidly changing area of law in how people understand what the decisions mean, how to interpret them, yeah. and so on. Um, one of the things we've touched on before, and, and um, we covered it heavily in, in our April newsletter, um, <coughs> there was a really important decision that came out about historic allegations and repressed memories. And what made this case that we're going to talk about really interesting is that the Supreme Court has said in the case, I believe it's called Waterman, um, that expert evidence is not required when you're dealing with uh, cases where there's recovered memories or repressed memories. Yeah, so set that up for a moment. And I just want to say one other thing, because you said something that's really important. You know, it is a very rapidly evolving area of law. Sexual assault case law and sexual assault cases are very specialized with rapidly changing decisions and understanding and it's incumbent upon all of us in the system to make sure we're up to date with it and we understand it and we work within the parameters of the cases and with with the legislation and this is an extremely interesting area that you're going to talk about now which is about memories mm -hmm. and typically we're dealing with historical sexual assault allegations mm -hmm. so why don't you frame this and set it up for everybody because we've spoken about this before but it's now rearing its head again right. rightly so well people's understanding of memory is sometimes bizarre um, quite often based on what they read in you know magazines or things like that and uh, sometimes through advocacy groups or you know self-help books or so on but um, you know there's very few people who are memory scientists so if you're going into a case with a recovered memory, it's hard to find an expert that can be qualified. Yes. And we talked about two cases. The first one was from uh, BC, no, Alberta. And, um, and they were able to bring in an expert. And so, you know, there's a good summary in there. That's not the case we're going to talk about today. There's a good summary of some of the important things she said. But the limits of an expert is that the expert can only talk about what we know about memory. They can't talk about the specific facts of the case. So there is some, even if you get an expert, there's some limitations. So the one we want to talk about is from Ontario's um, Superior Court. It's called RV, R versus BB 2023 uh, ONSC, which is our Superior Court number 396. And this case is so important because uh, they didn't have an expert. And the comments made by this particular judge, Justice Daw, I thought were so important and fantastic because he it, we'll get into some of the specific quotes but um he talks about the dangers of making assumptions about memory and how it works and it's interesting because we had a case maybe about a year year and a half ago which we litigated and buried in a superior court which was recovered memory where the complainant specifically said i made myself forget about it and then i remembered it 
And um, what was that line about erasing on a chalkboard? And you, have to, you have to be very suspicious when memory is like a, blo uh, a chalkboard that can be erased and rewritten at will. So that was the case we had where we were dealing with recovered memory. And this is specifically assessing the reliability of a complainant's recovered memory of a sexual assault. Okay, so there's, there's some quotes in here that are from the newsletter. So it sort of helps me to figure out what I thought, you know, what we thought were the, the you know, most important highlights. First of all, the complainant made comments that really caused some concern. Things like, uh, a lot of the times in your brain, when you have memories, they basically create a path. And when that path is harmful, your brain covers it up. Uh, as if you were walking through the woods and leaves and grass and twigs cover it. And you don't walk that path again. So what I learned is that when you go through something traumatic, it can uncover other traumatic experiences. Now, these are things that she says she learned from a therapist that she was seeing at the time. Right. And so let's frame this for a moment, because the complainant had said when she was 34 years of age, she had sudden flashback in which she remembered lying in bed with her parents when she was a child and her father, the defendant, reaching up her shirt and touching her nipples. She's now entirely confident that this is a genuine memory of something that really happened, but which she mentally suppressed for most of her life. You know, it's important when there's some evidence there that the memory ceased to exist at one point and then somehow returned. That's a, a really big red flag that there's, um, that there's need for concern. And so, so the trial judge in this case, he um, talked about common sense. And common sense is a principle that you try to use to try and figure out which thing is most likely to be true. Mm -hmm. But he makes some really important comments about um, how people, judges and jury members alike, and the general public have, uh, may have limited to no personal experience regarding how memory works. And the quote is, a judge or juror who has never personally experienced a flashback of a distant traumatic and long forgotten event may have difficulty accepting that such memories can ever be reliable. Equally, a judge or juror who has not personally had a vivid and seemingly real memory, memory in scare quotes, of something that demonstrably never happened, or that can be shown to have happened in a different way, they might find it highly counterintuitive that human memory can be so unreliable. So he identified these two diametrically opposed problems with relying on what could be seen as common sense, because your experience of memories can affect whether or not you believe what somebody says about memory. Right, your own personal experience. But let's frame this again for a moment because I like coming back to the specific evidence. And the judge mentions, uh, you know, quite frankly, while the possibility of a witness's memory fading or becoming corrupted and unreliable over time is one that must always be considered. The reliability concerns in this case are heightened by the complainant's frank acknowledgement that she had no memory at all of the alleged sexual assault by her father for most of her life, and that she only now recalls it after experiencing a sudden vivid flashback four and a half years ago in the summer of 2018, coupled with the fact that she had been going through therapy at the time. But again, like from the bit that I quoted about this, you know, you might not understand how the memories can be true. You might not understand, you know, why they can't be true. That, um, it's really important to realize that some people have been shown to have what they think are real memories of something that is demonstrably false. 
that can absolutely happen because it's not always the case that somebody is making a false allegation. There's a number of cases where the person absolutely believes it to be true. And, and, and I think, you know, the, the strange things that you hear about memory are really, I hate to use this word, problematic. There was something really interesting in uh, one of the cases, I think it's this one. One of the things I, I read in, because between the two cases, yeah. the person started going on about how the memories were in their amygdala and now the memories are in their prefrontal cortex so they can have access to it. And I happen to know where these phrases come from. And it's an absolute misunderstanding of what I think is junk science anyway. Well, and how memory is stored in any right. of that. But when you start seeing this kind of language coming out of the mouths of complainants, it's really concerning how much memory research they think they've done. And there's a lot of dispute in terms of what's actual science. In Let's go memory. back in time to a year of 1995. And one of Canada's great criminal lawyers. I love that he referenced this. Mark Rosenberg, who then uh, was partners with Eddie Greenspan and then ascended to the Court of Appeal of Ontario. And he was truly a real intellect. And he observed in 1995 in an article, shortly before his appointment to the Ontario Court of Appeal, repressed memory challenges the common sense notion that memories become less reliable over time. These memories come flooding back, apparently intact, accompanied by powerful emotions appropriate to the event and filled with vivid and realistic detail. The very richness of the detail seems to carry its own confirmation of reliability. And if the memories are untrue, where did they come from and why are they there? If the memory is not true, what possible motive does the witness have to or for remembering? Common sense and experience do not easily inform these questions. I like at the very beginning he points out that we, I think we can all agree memory does not get better over time. But what an interesting dilemma. Mm -hmm. It is attractive in some way to fall to the reasoning that there is a vividness and a richness to these memories and therefore they have inherent reliability because of that. But yet we've, but yet we know very clearly that there are proven instances of memories with richness and vividness that are absolutely demonstrably false. I've had dreams so vivid it seemed more real than real life. You know, dreams can, can provide a lot of vivid de detail and sometimes be confusing as to whether it was really a thing that happened or whether it was a dream. There's lots of ways these can happen. And, but again, like it just, I just remembered this one case that um, I was helping out with once. The, one of the weirdest things I've heard outside of the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex um, was somebody goes, my body remembered. So this is somebody who said they were unconscious at the time of an assault. But thank goodness my body remembered and I got a flashback in the middle of the night. And this was believed. So his honor in this case said something very interesting and um, which I think is, is an obvious but well-stated fact that the need for caution becomes heightened when in the case a critical uh, prosecution witness claims to have sudden recovered memory of a long forgotten memory. And at the very least, such recovered memories are atypical as a matter of everyday experience, which I think calls for them to be given especially close and careful scrutiny. And 
and plain and simple, that's correct, because you would have to remain skeptical that a recovered memory that has long been repressed has to be carefully scrutinized, regardless of the richness or vividness that's described. There is no other way around it. But we, but we hear this stated in another way that's a little more dangerous, where people say, no, 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 I always had the memory, I just pushed it away, so I didn't remember it, but it was always there. Because we've heard that too. Yes, and what about when you add to this um, that there's a risk of a witness honestly believing in the reality of a recovered memory that may be confabulated or mixed up with some other memory. There is no objective way of assessing that. There is no way of getting at other memories that may be infecting or causing this to happen. That we have such a limited basis to cross-examine a witness to understand their other memories or other traumatic experiences that may have influenced this memory. I mean, there's so much when you dig deep into this, when you, when you um, juxtapose this with the criminal burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. This is just ripe for wrongful conviction. I'll tell you why I think this decision is so important. Because there's a lot of people, and we've talked about the problems with access to justice and, uh, and so on, that there's a lot of people who simply can't afford a memory expert. And I think that this, oh, yeah. I think this case is going to be really important for um for future cases where they are there is evidence of memories that have been recovered or they claim to be repressed or whatever that um that this case i I think will be very helpful in trying to make clear the dangers of the reliability of the evidence well it's an interesting point because there's there's only very few experts you could go to um, and seek to have admitted as experts on memory and when we're talking about that, how memory operates, how it's encoded in the brain, and how one can possibly remember things, or what are the um, what are the uh, deficits of the of this type of evidence, and then having access to be able to call that witness and afford it is something which is very challenging. And even uh, if you can, they're still limited on what they can say about yeah. the facts of your case. So, you know, you raise a very good point and why I think we, we highlighted this case in the newsletter is that this gives a very strong argument to the fact that even without this expert, you can rely on some case law now to, to at least raise the bar for scrutiny yeah. on recovered memory right. and how counterintuitive it may very well be to accepting it uh, as reliable evidence. You know, there's another, you know, case that we were looking at, which, we, you know, we're not going to get into, whatever, but just in terms of memory, too, there's some really interesting cases coming up about the problems with memory when somebody's extremely intoxicated uh, in terms of the reliability of their memory, also in terms of their capacity to consent. But, but that's an ongoing issue, too, because... Um, because when somebody's extremely intoxicated, that uh, increases the chance that they're going to feel sexually assaulted, if whether or not they agreed to something, something or whether they were incapable. But when they're giving evidence, you know, when they reach a certain level of intoxication, there are real concerns about memory, which I don't think are being taken seriously enough in a lot of cases. You, you know, that's an excellent point, because we faced that recently in a trial, where you can have a witness to say, yes, I was intoxicated, or... You know, I wasn't that intoxicated, I wasn't that blasted, but I remember what happened. And you're really denying the reality of 
what we experience when we're intoxicated, that in fact your ability to perceive and therefore recall what happens is influenced and skewed by the fact that the person's intoxicated. And the more intoxicated somebody is, the less reliable, for God's sakes, their memory is. I mean, one would think this is common sense. But that is an issue that's repeating itself. And you're right, has some alignment with these recovered memories. Because although somebody who's intoxicated can very well be assaulted or sexually assaulted, and they can have evidence that's reliable, sufficient to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, but we have to be very careful about how we accept it and how we scrutinize it. Especially because in those cases, you'll have witnesses absolutely downplaying their intoxication and their memory impairment. In order to bolster their credibility. But thankfully in that case, you know, there was some surveillance footage that, you know, showed that their memories were completely full. Well, incorrect. We'll put it that way. Um, but also there was, you know, talk about how people come to believe something that's not true. There was also a, a lot of evidence that, um, that people had spoken to each other about what they say happened. And then the other person started to think, oh, wow, in hindsight, I guess, I, you know, that is what happened. And so that's some interesting evidence, too, that somebody may come to believe something but it's only because somebody else has somehow infected their own personal memories. And and how few, you know, how infrequent you will have this availability of evidence. Because you can have a trial where a witness who is obviously intoxicated and you have some evidence of that will deny that the intoxication has any impact on their ability to remember what happened. But then you'll have a case like what we had where there was some video surveillance and it happened to be, one would think is relatively innocuous, but the witness had specifically forgotten and stated something completely different than what was captured on the video. But how they arrived and the conditions under which they arrived at the building and all the other Yeah, so you'd think that would be a bit innocuous, but the reality is that just goes to show how unreliable their memory is, probably as a result of intoxication. And then in that case, you had, had two people talking where they had said in their statements that that had influenced the way I looked back at how the events happened. And fortunately, through cross-examination, we were able to tease out how that impacted the evidence. But can you imagine a case where you don't have that objective evidence? And then a trier of fact, a judge or a jury, is left only with that evidence of the complainant where you don't have that. But we know as a fact that intoxication does have that impact on memory. Mm-hmm. I know. And that's, that's one of the things that concerns me when... Um people start talking about how memory works um, because there's some bizarre theories about memory that have that have found their way into courtrooms both in Canada and the US and um, you know and there are experts who have continued to fight against all of these strange ideas that are coming out but when people read about this stuff and they come across you know these various theories and stuff then they start reassessing their own memories and seeing their memories in a different way or maybe it, it affects the way they recall, you know, certain moments of their life uh, without getting into, you know, the specifics of which different theories come out because they're endless in a way. Look at, I've heard things about sticky notes. Memories are like sticky notes. And then at some point you, you can go and you can read all the sticky notes in your brain and put all the pieces together. There's a lot of junk sort of science and, and, and papers written about how memory operates and trying related uh, to criminal cases. And we have to be very careful. And that's why I think this case was very, very good. I mean, it was a very simple, straightforward, but very cogent analysis by this judge about how you got to look at recovered memories. And I think this is going to be very, very well important. written, very well thought out. And, and, and I'm glad that we have this because this is without an expert 
that allows you know individuals who can't afford to to try and proffer that type of evidence to at least battle it and in in the face of certain obvious characteristics they might say it should be reliable when it isn't Um, but there's more to come now this is going to be a growing issue that we're going to have to deal with and there's um, I'm trying to get a hold of a research paper that at that's recently being done on memory that I'm going to try and get for us and that we'll probably look at in a coming podcast so uh, it's proffered by both a lawyer and a um, PhD and I'm going to see if I can get it for us I'm trying to dig it up yeah well and in the meantime to keep on top of the interesting new cases coming out definitely go and subscribe to the newsletter no yeah Yeah. (laughs) it comes out usually comes out every two months but Lately, it's been every three months, but... Well, the last one was late. Was, well, and then plus there was Christmas time, so there's not really a lot of decisions over that month. But um, but also, we, we were just swamped. <laughs> yeah, so if you want, our newsletter is available on the website. You can go to it. It has a lot of interesting cases that it, we try and make it very readable. But we're going to come back to the issue of memory in criminal cases, in particular sexual assault. And I will try and grab a hold of that uh, drafted research paper. And until then, thank you for viewing and uh like share busy week next week yeah like share subscribe notifications and uh, send us your emails and uh, and anything you want us to talk about thank you for viewing